I think our historically proven skill to find a way out where everybody else sees dead end is, uh, I think, a story about our adaptability. We have learned to adapt to the most adverse situations in Europe and still, in many ways, grow as a community. Romatopia. Romata e sintura ceren svato katrlendi utopia. Sarbišaja e Evropa teharateavel. Hello, Lecho Divis, and welcome to our next episode of the podcast Romatopia. Roma talk about their utopia for Europe. My name is Isabel Rabe, and I'm hosting this podcast together with William Bila. Hi, and a big welcome to everyone also from my side. In this podcast, we are going to talk to Roma from all over Europe and beyond about their lives, about their experiences and about their utopia. We want to present counter images and counter narratives to oppose stereotypes and prejudices. In the coming months, we'll be talking to a number of noteworthy community members from a varied cross-section of the Romani peoples. I'm really interested in hearing about what being Romani is to other people, because we don't often get a chance to discuss such things. For those who do not know, the Romani peoples are Europe's largest minority. This includes Sinti, Roma, Gitanos, Romanis, and other groups who loosely share a common ancestry and have been present in Europe for well over 600 years. Through linguistic theories, we know they originated in India, traveled through Persia, and were present in the Eastern Roman Empire for some time before dispersing throughout Europe. Their economic and cultural contributions have historically been overlooked. Their history is an integrally interwoven part of European history, which also is often mistaken as one of external exclusion and hardship. Though periods of extreme persecution did make their mark well before the 20th century and the genocide which we suffered during the Second World War. After the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989, Romani peoples have gradually been making themselves more visible on the European scene. Let's welcome today's guest, Jelko Jovanovic. So welcome, Jelko. To have another perspective on you as a person, we asked someone um, who knows you very well to describe you in one sentence. It goes, he is a tireless advocate of Roma human rights, a generous man and a great cook. And we asked Aurora Alinjai. She said this. She's your wife and she's also working in the Council of Europe at the Roma and Travelers team. Personal questions actually come later, but I'm curious, what do you cook when you cook? You know, this uh, last month, I tried to improve my cooking skills. I watched uh, lots of uh, uh, videos. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I learned is something that's very applicable to our work, uh, Isabel. Uh, that, uh, you know, the greatest chefs don't follow a recipe. They have a certain philosophy of cooking, and then they see what they have, either within the season or on the market or in the fridge and so on. And uh, they have a good technique. Mm. So philosophy plus technique 
is a great cooking, not follow the recipe. I agree with you 100%. And I've done the same. I've been watching videos and then I thought, I don't need to remember exactly what the ingredients are. I can do it. I just needed to watch a little bit the technique and now I can yes. do it. Yes. Could please somebody tell this to my husband because I'm driving him crazy, not sticking with the recipe. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, really a great experience because, you know, in the last months, we are constantly in front of the screens. Mm. And I don't have enough time for meditation because all of a sudden we became so, you know, exposed on camera and tired after all day. Mm -hmm. I don't have enough time. So what I do is that I have a, during the day a, a break and, you know, weekends. I have a break during the day for preparing lunch. And then I have one hour of, you know, super concentrated uh, attention mm -hmm. to, to cooking and experimenting with what I have and so on. And that it takes uh, uh, all my focus and energy and that became uh, a way for me to uh, actually have one detox moment mm -hmm. during the day. So that accumulation of, you know, when you try this, let's say three, four days a week, you improve cooking skills because you're testing different things and so on you get a little bit of inspiration through all these videos and so on. So over time, uh, yes, I improved a little bit. Good job. That's a good approach. Uh, Jellico, for that our listeners get to know you a little better, I'm going to read a short CV of yours, okay? Mm -hmm. Jeliko Jovanovic is the director of the Open Society Roma Initiatives Office, which supports the leadership of Roma in making their power felt in the policy-making arena. Jeliko comes from a family of Roma ethnic background, which, through a belief in hard work, self-determination and education, moved from multi-generational extreme poverty to middle class in Serbia. Before joining the Open Society Foundations in 2006, he worked for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe on Elections and Public Policy and for Catholic Relief Services on Civil Society Development. He also has established a local Roma organization and community radio programming. Jellico has degrees in law from the University of Belgrade and in public policy from the University of Oxford. He completed the executive education program on strategic management at Harvard University. He's a member of the Aspen Institute Network and chair of the PAVIC board of the European Roma Institute for Arts and Culture, ERIAC. So is that correct? Do you want to add anything? Well, you know, whenever I uh, I hear Isabel, people like you now uh, introducing me in various panels and conferences, as you read almost every phrase and every sentence, I have this kind of backflash, or how you call it in English, Bill? Yeah, a flashback. Flashback of the moments in, in my life. And uh, these are certainly important ones, but I'm not sure people can know who I am as a person only by uh, reading uh, the, the CV. So there is something in it, but definitely like any other person, there is much more than, than this. Well, then let's get to it and let's let's get to know a little bit more about Jelko the person. So let me start by asking you, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and your family? What's What are some vivid memories for you? Right. So I, I would say my childhood was, uh, I would say, a story of transition in which uh, two people, my father and my mother, who came from extreme poverty, uh, got together 
in the context of still communism, socialism, and transition towards democracy, they slowly but surely progressed from the poorest of the poor segments of, uh, at the time, Yugoslavian society to, uh, I would say, a comparatively middle class of our environment. And that transition was this mixture of, you know, feeling the poverty in your bones in terms of cold house, not enough heating, occasionally not having food at the table, waiting for my grandmother to come from a village where she was begging and fortune-telling and bringing us food at the table in her very famous in the family bag made of kind of a quasi leather, blue, sky blue and beige, in which uh, you would have a mixture of traditional uh, uh, Serbian food as well as cakes all together uh, with some smoked uh, meat, uh, prosciutto, chicken to be roasted, uh, all that together. When she comes with a bag uh, from the village, we would gather around her like a Christmas Santa Claus uh, came uh, <laughs> uh, with uh, with presents and it would be incredible joy. But moments until then, we didn't have, of course, mobile phones and so on. We couldn't anticipate when she would come. So I, I would wait there with my uncles for her to come back so we would have some food at the table. Uh, and in meanwhile, we would be looking at the you know kitchen, deprived of food, deprived of ingredients, everything that we expect to see in the fridge and, and the rest of the kitchen. Uh, we didn't have anything. So these memories were there, but also the memories I inherited of my mother, because my mother was telling me always the stories of her childhood, the stories of hunger, stories of violence, both violence uh, within the Roma community towards her as, you know, the poorest among them, and also uh, a daughter of a single mother who at that time was almost seen as a whore in a patriarchal community, mm-hmm. but also violence uh, from non-Roma, violence that she was living in the school, pictures that uh, she was describing uh, as a pictures of uh, survival, pictures of uh, struggle, pictures of fight. For her to get through education, finally, she came from this child uh, not having shoes and always wearing the clothes that she can find on the garbage or that other people would give her, or never her size and never kind of uh, proper, always either thorn or broken. She would be having uh, the food in the school only if other kids would have mercy or the teacher would have mercy to give her some food. And she went through the education without uh, anybody's help except her teacher, uh, all the way to university. Mm -hmm. That story of struggle was uh, the story that empowered me greatly. When she would put me to sleep, she would always whisper in my ear, uh, you have to be somebody. Uh, You should not be nobody like me. So that's what marked my memories. Okay. So this transformation from extreme poverty to middle class just arises out of the strength. You you talked about your mother, the strength and the willingness to have an education to go to university, right? Well, it is, I I have to say, it it, it was a mixture as it it always is, if we want to look at it, uh, you know, honestly. There is no superhero who Mm. only succeeds 
because of her own or his own will. There is also circumstance. So, you know, my mother definitely had a will and determination. She was, you know, also, so to say, stubborn, persistent, that she wants to change her life. But there was this teacher in school who was not necessarily anti-racist at that time. We even didn't have that concept in, you know, 60s. He was not pro-human rights, you know. But he was a teacher who believed that every kid deserves a chance. And he was kind of, uh, that was also the post-war period in which former Yugoslavia was, you know, devastated by war. And, uh, you know, you had this popular struggle to rebuild the country and so on. So there was this sensitivity also that everybody should be taking part in rebuilding the country. So there was this teacher who was supporting her. Plus, After she finished university, she got a job immediately in public administration because she graduated economics. She got a job because she was one of the best students. And at that time, Communist Party was having a very strict uh, and advanced so-called human resource policy that they would screen the best students always and give them the membership in the Communist uh, uh, Party. And immediately she got a job. Mm -hmm. So she was also a leader of the so-called Communist Youth Section in the Communist Party, uh, organizing youth around, you know, um, social issues, social events, uh, culture, and so on. So there was also this circumstance that at the time she she used and the circumstance that was useful to her. But definitely without her will and self-determination and struggle and persistence, this wouldn't have been possible. Because if it was, um, many others would progress like her. Mm-hmm. And your father, he was a businessman, right? My father, you know, was uh, also, you know, a typical story of, of that time for many Roma. My father was left on the streets by his parents because they had to leave uh, Yugoslavia at that time and go to Vienna. They migrated. Uh, they had to uh, work and he was left with his grandparents, but mostly surviving on the streets. Over time, he also graduated at that time secondary education and immediately uh, tried to find, uh, you know, various ways of, of survival. He was first a taxi driver, then a uh, He bought a grocery shop and he was always entrepreneur. So this combination of, you know, him being entrepreneur and my, uh, my mom working in public administration was kind of uh, a mix that pushed us from these margins uh, of the society in different senses, especially economical sense, to the middle, middle class. I read that your mother was pro and your father against um, Milosevic and <laughs> yes. very vocally and publicly against yes. Milosevic regime. How was this within the family? It was very tense uh, because <laughs> my mom, uh, uh, as well as my grandmother, you know, until she died, my my ma uh, my grandmother had uh, Tito's uh, picture and then Milosevic's uh, picture in her apartment, a big one on the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, my grandmother was... As I said, uh, a singer, single mother, and you know, had, having children from five different people, or who knows? Because at that time, being a you know a Roma, being a singer, and being a single mother, as I said, uh, gave entitlement to men to do with her whatever they want, and she was probably raped a couple of times. So. She was, uh, you know, this lady without any kind of protection and. All of a sudden, because she was also a cleaning lady in a local post, uh, because she had five kids, 
she got uh, a, a state-owned uh, apartment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for them, for the family, this was a huge thing. So she said, if the system gave this chance to me, why would I be against the system? And then my mom uh, was, of course, uh, exposed constantly to the propaganda of uh, Milosevic uh, uh, during the 90s, working in, you know, state administration. But my father was, you know, generally kind of dissatisfied with the, with the system as an entrepreneur because everything was under the control of the, of the ruling party. Yeah. Plus, he had an experience of uh, capitalism in the West because our grandmother, as I said, migrated. They migrated to Vienna. He went a couple of times to visit her and he could see the difference in, uh, you know, lifestyle and opportunities. So he could see that there is an alternative to what we have uh, had in, in 90s in Serbia, 80s and 90s in Serbia. So by, basically, he was uh, from uh, early on, from uh, 91 publicly in the polling station announcing his voting against Milosevic. And that, of course, uh, brought us a lot of uh, trouble, financial inspection in our grocery store. Uh, He was among the first to be uh, mobilized for the war in uh, Croatia, but he avoided that. So he was always on the on the other on the other side and there were fierce debates in the family which gave me and somehow a possibility to see through arguments uh, from both uh, both sides not necessarily because uh, i as a child was as usually children of uh, of parents fighting you know would find a, a way to be peacemakers but because uh, you know, also neighbors and cousins would be engaging in these debates. And I would have politics around the kitchen table uh, almost every day. And my father got involved uh, in a Roma party at the time that was part of the opposition. Uh, And uh, all of a sudden, I found myself sitting on a couch very late in in the night where a local branch of the political party was having secret meetings around the table. And I was listening to these conversations and planning for campaigns and protests and so on. Mm. Uh, and learning. That's how you became an activist yourself, right? Exactly. This is how how I was uh, interested in politics from this early on um, age. Uh, also, the branch of the party was was in my house, and uh, I went to Belgrade to volunteer for the party and work uh, in an independent radio production at that time at the only independent free media in uh, Serbia. But also because I went to a very prominent secondary school, one of the best secondary schools in former Yugoslavia. And the school was politicized itself. Half, roughly half of the school of, I mean, teachers uh, and staff were pro Milosevic, half against. So I was in the, you know, in the against uh, the regime uh, segment. And I was running away, you know, from uh, the classes to participate in protests. Uh, very early with my uh, with my father. Later, my mom also uh, joined. But the school itself was a place where lots of politics was discussed. So I had this at home. I had this in school. So uh, early on, I became a pro-democracy activist, not a Roma activist. Uh-huh. I was there in 2000 uh, in the streets uh, in 2000 in October, 5th of October, when uh, when the revolution happened, I uh, was, uh, you know, one of those distributing the leaflets of the opposition candidate that uh, won the elections. I was there in the, in the protests uh, for years before that. So, yes, I was already 15, 16 
uh, when uh, when I was uh, kind of uh, in protests and volunteering for the for the political party. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and your schooling and how how was it for you at school? Um, did you experience discrimination as a Roma in your school? Of course, of course. I mean, uh, uh, there was always this thing about you know gypsies uh, in popular culture and of course in school. Uh, in uh, elementary school, I was, uh, of course, called the names and so on. But the thing is that the teachers, most of them, not all of them, were quite fair because I was one of the best students. I only had the be best marks and I was particularly good in history. And curiously, I, I had this kind of inner uh, anger that transformed into being really good in uh, Serbian language and grammar. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, attending uh, championships in Serbian grammar by being Roma. And uh, and I was, you know, better in Serbian than many of my, my peers. Uh, but I still had these uh, uh, incidents uh, in secondary school as well, because I went to, as I said, this kind of very prominent uh, school where either if you can end up, if you are either very, very talented and good in elementary education, you have good marks, uh, which I did, or if uh, if you are, uh, you know, very rich, uh, uh, coming from very rich and prominent family. Yeah. So there, of course, I, I experienced racism. And this is, of course, part of what I felt wrong in life. Uh, my family was also experiencing racism. My mom in the job, I mean, there were there was one incident uh, when uh, uh, as a tax inspector, she had to deliver a bad news to somebody. And that guy uh, attacked her physically, hit her uh, in the municipality, in, in her working place. And, you, you know, was uh, calling her names. My father as well, uh, as being a relatively successful uh, entrepreneur uh, locally, we were having like six, seven times uh, uh, more frequent uh, visits of the financial police than others. And so on. There were many, many uh, episodes. And probably part of that was uh, what, what was pushing my family and myself to join the opposition movement because we were against some injustice. At that time, we articulated it as pro-democracy. And we, we believe that if democracy uh, becomes a rea reality, the situation for everybody will be better. But that was not the right assumption, as we, as we have seen after 2000, when, when democracy was introduced in the country and democratic forces overtook the government. So the battlefield changed, but the battle uh, for us as Roma remained the same. Mm. And, and did this continue while you went to university? Yes. But you know, uh, you know, Bill, it's good that you uh, uh, ask about this. You know, I had kind of a double life. Uh, you know, because of the racism that was a fact of life for us as Roma, as you know, Bill, yeah. uh, my family had a, always a plan B for me. Plan A was that I push really through education and I should be the best I can and so on. But plan B was to learn to play violin, to play uh, music. So if there were several scenarios, if, uh, if I'm not so talented, uh, you know, in, in education, in schooling, that uh, I will have this as a plan B. Uh, mm -hmm. Or if I am good in school, but I cannot get a job, this is again plan B. So I was in parallel to my schooling in secondary school and, education and uh, university, practically making my own money by playing in weddings, in mm -hmm. um, restaurants, bars, and so on, playing uh, music. 
Uh, and having this kind of uh, street uh, school and uh, learning uh, street smarts and, uh, you know, being educated in quite good uh, schools. My, my university in Belgrade was probably the best uh, law, law school at the time in, in former Yugoslavia. And during university, I also got a job. I started working with this American uh, American organization, Catholic Relief Services, that you, Isabel, mentioned. Mm-hmm. And that was my first professional working experience on uh, first working uh, in the communities, not only Roma, but also working with the refugees, uh, uh, I, uh, internally displaced persons from Kosovo, working with poor Muslim communities, uh, poor uh, Christian communities, people with disabilities, and distributing humanitarian aid. And afterwards, we started working on development of civil society, good governance, uh, and training uh, for uh, civic uh, activism, including the, the Roma. Since secondary school, I had always combined kind of work and, uh, and education. Was it your parents who encouraged you to, to study law? Or did you want to study something else? My father, especially, uh, wanted me to be a medical doctor because that was kind of well-respected profession. I was never interested in, <laughs> in, in, in that. Then I wanted something that is, you know, uh, social science. Since I studied, I was in the social science stream of, of the secondary school. Uh, Isabel, I think we, we borrowed this type of education from Germany uh, we call it gymnasium, which is mm-hmm. not kind of sport, but it's uh, this uh, broad education yeah. that prepares you for university. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was in the kind of social sciences stream, so I wanted something like that. And uh, I was watching a lo- and enjoying, uh, you know, movies where I see lawyers well articulated, well argu- argumented, winning the case. So I, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go to study law. My father then said, okay, what is a, re- uh, a respectable profession there? You should be a judge. And I, I was not, uh, you know, of course, uh, ending up being a judge. But I studied law because I was interested in the issues of justice and, uh, you know, defending uh, a case and so on. Over time, I realized that this kind of communist, post-communist education where I, I was more forced to memorize rather than understand was not really for me. That's why my development was intellectual development was much more supported by my work in this American organization where I was learning critical thinking analysis and so on. Then in studies, I I was just practically uh, learning at home and passing the exam while working full time for this American organization that actually was a a key point in my development. They hired uh, at the time one of the best analysts in the country to be my mentor. And what happened at that time, she would tr- practically try to reconfigure the logic in my head for and, and prepare it for analytical, critical thinking rather than, you know, memorizing and, you know, this kind of education that we know in the uh, communist systems. Mm-hmm. So I would be in front of a whiteboard for about three months every day. And whatever I say, she would ask me why, <laughs> why. Why? For about eight hours a day. So that would blow my mind completely because I had to learn how to argument because I was too arrogant. Some people say I'm still too arrogant. But (laughs) at that time, uh, I was uh, uh, too arrogant in uh, believing that whatever I say about Roma, just because I'm Roma, it is right. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was working on proving me wrong by bringing counter arguments. 
So basically for three months, I had to develop kind of a mind map of everything that I have in my head that it has, you know, a proof and argumentation besides my claims. And then she would work with me on developing a research methodology to implement the methodology, compile the data, uh, analyze the data, synthesize conclusions, present them in public. So all the cycle that is almost like a, you know, PhD approach. I had this when I was 21. Mm -hmm. And that gave me, I I believe, a considerable advantage. I see. uh, Relative to my peers in the kind of uh, uh, intellectual and professional development. That was, I think, a big, big, big boost Mm -hmm. that uh, at the time also attracted, I think, uh, Nikolai Georgiev to to work with me and uh, invest uh, invest time in working, working with me. Wow, that was a very effective training you went you went through. Yeah. Now I understand your skills in in discussing. Jeliko, <laughs> <laughs> um, you live in Berlin and in Strasbourg at the moment. Um, you travel a lot throughout Europe as part of your work. Where do you feel at home? You know, Isabel, I was thinking these days uh, exactly about this question. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's very difficult for me to explain where I am from to, you know, in, in one sentence, like other, most of other people, you know, I, I am, I'm Roma, grew up in Serbia, spent more of my professional life in Hungary than in Serbia, now move, uh, move to Berlin and live in Berlin, but also my family is in Strasbourg. So it's quite complicated, but it is, it, it is enriching. It's, it's sometimes confusing, Isabel, but uh, it is enriching. I'm not sure I still feel Serbia the same way as my home as I did, but definitely is part of who I am and or who I was. Uh, Hungary, in some strange way, also feels part of where I grew up practically and matured uh, as, a, as a person, as a professional, as an advocate. Uh, Germany is definitely new experience and <laughs> has lots of significance uh, uh, for me, especially because Germany, besides the history and related, you know, history related to Roma, but also his my own development and uh, success in bringing uh, Ariak from idea to reality is also tied to Germany and how I worked in the German politics and German mm-hmm. political context. Mm-hmm. Now. I have to tell you, I couldn't stand Strasbourg when I started coming to, to Strasbourg. <laughs> but it kind of has a good uh, good feel. It uh, has a good feel for me because my family is here. Uh, so I feel it also now, now, especially in the last months of lockdown being nonstop in Strasbourg, it mm-hmm. feels also part of who, who I am. So indeed, uh, uh, home, uh, Isabel, is a complex <laughs> matter. <laughs> Uh, for many people, it, it is becoming uh, a complex matter, and and I think it is good. We have loyalties mm-hmm. to different experiences, not only f- to one, because I think it also closes our our perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jelico, we were asking uh, you to bring us uh, a guest gift. Do you remember something that is important for you? We asked you to bring you an um, bring us an object, a virtual object, which is linked to an important biographical anecdote or represent anything that is important for you. Um, what did you bring us? Honestly, I forgot about that. <laughs> what I could uh, have brought, if I remembered, is uh, is I would say my uh, my bracelet. Mm-hmm. Um, 
my bracelet, uh, which is a wedding bracelet mm -hmm. uh, with Aurora. And that's more than a more than a wedding. Uh, Aurora and the, the the stage in in my life in which she came really marked my maturity mm -hmm. as a person, also my personal transformation, and finally understanding what a life partner means. You know, in Serbian language, I guess in uh, in uh, Slovak too, uh, uh, Bill. When you say partner. It sounds like, you know, a business partner, uh, mostly from, you know, the English language. We don't say, you know, for our spouse, uh, this is my partner. But over time, I, I realized uh, how important it is to uh, have a person next to you to share life with, to share good and bad in life with. And this is, a, I think, a larger story that made me realize that uh, I am who I am is about the people that are around me. And Aurora definitely being the closest uh, and most influential. But uh, it is very easy these days to fall into, you know, a typical Hollywood uh, hero story. And this is what I mentioned also when you asked me about my, my mother, that we believe Things happen, especially good things, uh, success happens to us because who we are and our smarts and our capability and this, this hero syndrome together with the extreme of individualism uh, brings us to a position in which we fall very easily in this celebrity syndrome that is accentuated by social media. So we, we consider ourselves as isolated island of success, prominence, intelligence, and so on. While these years uh, and this, this, uh, this symbol is always a reminder for me mm -hmm. uh, how important people who, who are in my life, who passed through my life, actually shaped who I am, much more than I myself consciously uh, influencing my life and, uh, and my... Uh, my uh, uh, upbringing, my maturity, my development, uh, and so on. So if I brought uh, a physical object, that would be one of those that are most uh, most important ones. Because this period, this period with, uh, with Aurora was really marked by, that, by, by inner transformation in me that brought many conclusions, and this is one of those. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's uh, I think that's really important and very insightful. Yeah. The word partner is something that that transmits that, and it's a it's evolved a little bit actually in Slovak and in Czech. People in nowadays when they say partner, it doesn't have so much that it's not always business partner because it's a, it's a foreign word. It's a foreign word. There's a Slovak word you say spoločník or a business partner, and mm -hmm. if you you talk about partner, it's with different political movements. It's becoming mm -hmm. a little bit more as you described, uh, I think. Yeah. And this connection with with other people, uh, I I fully agree, and I I, I share that opinion with you. Uh, who we are. We're not isolated islands, but we are people with connections who give and receive. And with that, I'd like to make the connection a little bit back to your professional life and your connection with Nikolai Gheorghe. The sociologist and philosopher Nikolai Gheorghe, born in Romania in 1946, is considered one of the fathers of the modern Romani civil rights movement. Gheorghe, who died in 2013 at the age of 66, 
moved from being an assimilated Romanian to a tireless Roma activist. He said of himself, I was taught to be Romanian, then I rediscovered my identity, and I want to die as a human being. You met him in 2003, you worked with him. Uh, he's an icon of the Roma rights movement. Can you tell us a little bit about your, what you appreciate most about your time with him? I didn't know who, who uh, Nikolaj Gergie was until a conference in, in Belgrade, in which uh, my study at the time, that was a result of the work with this uh, uh, analyst uh, that uh, I told you about, my publication was among the materials there. And uh, uh, Nikolai was invited in that conference, and he was browsing through the materials, including uh, this, uh, this uh, publication, the book uh, that I wrote at the time. At the time, he was saying he is quite impressed uh, with the analysis where I was presenting kind of um, interaction between the issues that we have inside the community as causes of our situation as well as causes outside of the of the community so that there was a that i was showing there is a connection between the problems within and problem problems arising outside of the of the community and he was referring to it in his uh, speech keeping the book in his hand and uh, i approached him afterwards and thanked him for this and in that moment, I don't know if you how much you know Nikolai. He started, you know, spending time with me, uh, endless hours, and obviously recruiting me to to work with him. He at that time offered me a very impressive contract, impressive salary to work uh, with him on a on a project in on on a Roma and Stability Pact in South, South in Southeast Europe. <laughs> the salary of the time was a very big, uh, fifty euros. <laughs> and of course, I accepted because, as many other people, I was uh, totally mesmerized uh, by the thinking of of Nikolai and, uh, and his uh, his intelligence and so on. But my learning from Nikolai was not a story of working uh, of working with him and learning from him. It was a story of conflicts with with Nikolai, because uh, we had a conflict first uh, in the evaluation of his project where in the meeting in Bucharest, I was fiercely criticizing the impact of the, of the project. And uh, Nikolai at the time sat with me afterwards and he said, okay, if you are so critical and you know better, here is the uh, uh, position for you. So in the next stage, you will be a regional manager for the Balkans, for the whole project, if you know better. And that was a challenge. Uh, and uh, I started working. At that time, I didn't have, uh, I was 23, 24. Of course, I didn't have managerial experience. I made mistakes. But at that time, Nikolai was brutal on, on these mistakes, and um, we had so strong disagreements. And then I re resigned from that project, and I told him, I will show how the project can work, but not in the way you want. And we didn't talk for about two years, and I did the project. The project was about how you, uh, the project was called Roma Use Your Ballot Wisely. It was how you to use uh, electoral cycles mm -hmm. for, uh, for advocacy. And I uh, worked on this in my own way, interpreted the project in my own way. And uh, at certain point, I sent a short report about the project to Nikolai just to show to him how I can do it 
without him. I was quite rebellious, uh, and uh, had, I had similar fights with, with my father. Probably there was some, mm-hmm. some psychology in my head at that time. And of course, Nikolai called me immediately in the evening, 11 o'clock in the night, to discuss. Like, nothing happened. Like, we just kind of continued the conversation where we ended two years before that. And since then, we, we started working. So these, you know, two conflicts uh, where I was criticizing his work and then resigning from the project and doing things on my own were kind of influential moments from which I learned. And Nikolai told me was uh, afterwards that he was also learning from me. So we were quite uh, close and I learned a lot from, from him. Uh, but through this kind of, you know, interaction that was not always uh, pleasant, but definitely uh, one of the most uh, influential people uh, on, on my uh, development was uh, uh, was Nikolai. In 2005, uh, I got a job uh, in uh, OSE Mission in Belgrade, and uh, this is where we practically restarted the relationship. He was also very supportive because he was still in uh, in, in Warsaw. So in 2005, finished my work uh, at a very local level uh, on the ground where I showed how things could work. I built a very strong organization at the time locally. I built a local radio uh, at the time, uh, negotiated with municipality, local policy on ed- education and how municipality should uh, support Roma uh, uh, education and so on. So I went back uh, to international organizations. Uh, I, I'm saying went back because before that I was, before working with Nikolai, I was working with this American organization. So I went back to Belgrade, got a job in OSE, got two promotions practically in one year within OSE, and since I reached a glass ceiling, because there is a, there is a limit in OSE uh, yeah. how far local staff can go in terms of hierarchy, I got an offer from Budapest, from uh, Roma Participation Program at that time, and I went to Budapest. I went to work uh, for Open Site Foundations. Jeliko, mm. you're an academic, but you're also a cultural person. We learned that you're a musician um, in your <laughs> life, <laughs> um, and you were... Um, tirelessly promoting the European Institute for Arts and Culture. The European Roma Institute for Arts and Culture, ERIAC, is a transnational European-level organization for the recognition of Roma arts and culture. ERIAC is a joint initiative of the Council of Europe, the Open Society Foundation and a Roma Leaders Initiative, the Alliance for the European Roma Institute for Arts and Culture. ERIAC exists to increase the self-esteem of Roma and to decrease negative prejudice of the majority population towards the Roma by means of arts, culture, history and media. ERIAC is based in Berlin. Why, in your opinion, is culture a very important tool for resistance? Isabel, I have to tell you that until ERIAC... I was perceived as a person who is absolutely focused on political participation. Mm-hmm. Since I started in this American organization working on developing civic activism, then with Nikolai on uh, international um, uh, advocacy and local work on using elections for advocacy, and then in RPP, again, working on political participation. Lots of people ask me, why do you speak about arts and culture now? And this comes 
from misunderstanding that there is some division between arts and culture and uh, politics. And that division for me is actually inexistent. And this is because the way I understand the transformative power of art and culture is actually the underpinning of any social change. Because if we understand arts and culture as another way of expressing ideas about the world, especially critical ideas about the world, visionary ideas about the world, visionary in the sense how the world should be, then to me, arts and and culture is deeply intertwined with uh, with uh, politics and i speak about politics with capital p i'm not speaking about you know politicking of daily you know political quarrels or uh, uh, elections only to me politics is about how people come together to decide for common good so who decides and how these decisions are made and what are the what are these decisions is a critical moment for every person uh, in in our societies that's why mm expressing critique of our societies, expressing the vision for our societies, the transformative power of art is essential. In the minority struggle as well, when you see the the, uh, art that uh, has played a role, not only in African-American movement, but any liberation movement across the globe, it's immense. But also if we see how authoritarian regimes treat art, on the one hand, killing any sense of transformative art and instill and using art for propaganda it also tells you that art has a, a, a power a it's powerful power. yes mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and and art uh, has no boundaries it has complete freedom whereas policy and activism has to a certain degree mm. especially that uh, Art has something that, you know, a regular kind of uh, policy making and uh, regular daily politics doesn't have, which is to transcend, as you said, borders, but also to bring together the emotional self and rational self uh, in a very different way. Because we usually, as activists, we try to speak to the rational part of, uh, of humans. And that, as we know from science, is very, very limited, that we are first and foremost driven by emotions. Uh, And art has this power to uh, touch your emotion and and your uh, uh, rational thinking at the same time. Because if it only touches emotions, then it's entertainment. And that's not what I'm interested uh, in. I'm interested in transformative part uh, of our full being. And I I think art has a tremendous power for this. I just think it's important to note that emotions are valid data points. So when you're addressing someone's fear, that fear is real, whether it's not, it's justified. And and, uh, I think it applies in in, in that way too. Joko, in uh, order to appeal a little bit also to your emotions, we have a little game here. <laughs> yeah, let's play. Okay. Um, we will yeah. now read some terms to you and answer spontaneously. You have to okay. answer just uh, without thinking in one word or in a very short sentence, okay? Okay. Community. Roma. Nature. Life. Youth. Uh, energy. Family. Uh, 
My father and mother. Home. Warmth. Yesterday. Past. Tomorrow. Future. Hope. Strength. Europe. Freedom. Politics. Power. Dilino. Um, play. Bachtalo. Uh, joy. Gajo. Uh, foreign. Anti gypsyism. Enemy. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Jellico, uh, let's talk a bit about Utopia. Um, mm -hmm. Crisis can become become starting points for inclusion in the sense that not only marginalized groups feel marginalized, um, but we all feel abandoned somehow. Do you think that the current crisis, the corona pandemic, but all the other crises the world is facing as well, like climate change, etc., can these crises be a starting point for, for change? Yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense that it's possible, but know that it's not, we shouldn't take it for granted. Mm -hmm. Because we have seen, for example, in post-communist countries after the fall of Berlin Wall, uh, we had a you know, crisis as an opportunity. The whole world was uh, kind of uh, welcoming the transition towards market economy and uh, democracy. But for Roma, this was not necessarily uh, a change for the better. Uh, it didn't translate. I mean, we lost the jobs. We were the first to lose the jobs in the kind of uh, state-owned and uh, rural industry. And uh, we were last to be hired in competitive market economy. Racism got reinforcement through the kind of uh, free market forces because we assumed that uh, the free market is a chance for everyone without you know, acknowledging that uh, different people or different segments of population have a different starting point. So we were kind of uh, collateral damage and losers of that transition. When you see also financial crisis, uh, if we talk about the crisis of, uh, of COVID-19, if we see financial crisis, uh, we were again pushed from bad position to the worst position because the financial crisis model of recovery was favoring big business uh, and big banks Uh, assuming that they are too big to fail and if they recover, the economy will recover for everyone. And of course, we've seen just an increase in uh, inequality. Plus, it gave rise to uh, xenophobic uh, populists and far right that further uh, downgraded the uh, political will uh, that we, uh, we were trying to build during the times of EU accession uh, back in uh, late 90s and early 2000s. So when you see that uh, green transition, that will be the, the major transition uh, for our societies and the COVID crisis, when you look at the democratic transition and the financial crisis, I wouldn't be optimistic, but I would also not be a priori pessimistic. I think a lot is in our hands. Uh, in terms of pro-Roma advocates, and a lot is in the hands of the politicians that claim to be progressive, inclusive, non-populist, or centrist, or green, and so on. So 
I think it's it's going to be a, a battle in which we can advance, but it's going to be a hard battle for that. But definitely there is there is some some opening as you rightly recognize this about. Jilko, I have a, a quote from you. It says, uh, we Roma are part of the solution for recovery of Europe mm-hmm. of this crisis. Uh, we are then the youngest and fastest growing ethnic community in Europe. Even if we're not formally employed, we're working, we're productive. The EU should protect us from the pandemic and invest in our strength and potential. This mm-hmm. is the right thing to do morally and legally, but also for an aging Europe, it's the right thing to do economically. Yeah. Can you speak to what can the majority societies learn from remote communities? How can Roma be role models for everyone? I think our historically proven skill to find a way out where everybody else sees dead end is, uh, I think, a story about our adaptability. Uh, We have learned to adapt to the most adverse situations in Europe. Uh, and still, in many ways, grow as a community, grow in economic sense, in intellectual sense, and so on. Not grow comparatively to other populations, but comparatively to what we are up against. So our story of perseverance, adaptability, we are also multilingual, multilingual, multi-ethnic. So if we can survive and thrive in impossible conditions, everybody else who has comparatively better conditions should have hope. Mm -hmm. So in my view, this is something that we can offer to to the mainstream population. Immense sense of hope and and joy of of life and living in the times when you have depression as uh, kind of a, a widespread illness in the in the Western Western world. So I think that that point of adaptability and and uh, finding joy in small things is is what we offer. But I do believe that uh, looking at the demographic trends, our multilingualism, uh, our adaptability, our mobility—not in terms of us uh, being nomadic, but in terms of mo- mobility of circumstances in which we find quickly ways to adapt and still make a living—is what the modern world strives for. We see that uh, that kind of adaptability is especially important, as Isabel said, in the times of crisis. Mm-hmm. So, if we are a, a community that speaks minimum two languages from the start that uh, uh, is uh, uh, easy to adapt, that lives in uh, in most diverse contexts uh, across Europe, the community that is vibrant, the community that is entrepreneurial, I think we are part of the long-term solutions for Europe because all the prospects, at least the studies that I read, show that uh, Europe will struggle uh, economically uh, with uh, its aging uh, aging population. So today we are uh, living in the most uh, peaceful and uh, richest continent on earth. But we shouldn't take it for granted because we see that the war is just on our borders. When you look at Ukraine, mm. you see far right uh, growing and it grows even in Germany of all the countries that invested fighting the post-Second World War Nazi uh, ideology. Mm. Today, we have a a struggle 
of Macron, as you know, Bill, that uh, he is playing now with far-right rhetorics to get some voters from Le Pen because uh, he believes he cannot count on the votes of Muslims and and black uh, uh, French uh, citizens. So we shouldn't take this for granted. And when you look at the prosperity in economic terms, aging population is not good news in Europe, where you have growing uh, uh, you know, economic strength in Asia, in Latin America, you have trade war between China and uh, US, and you have energy dependency on Russia. Mm-hmm. So I believe that our demography, our vibrancy, our adaptability is a strength that Europe still hasn't recognized. Our role is to make it recognized, but it requires a bit of investment precisely to counteract the legacy of racism of the of the past we need investment in our young people in terms of education for 21st century we need investment in our entrepreneurs to move from informal economy to formal economy to move from only physical to online business operations mm-hmm. uh, we need uh, uh, to help our uh, workers uh, through vocational training adapt to the new industries that will be developed under the green deal So with a little bit of investment, we can bring a a big economic gain because the World Bank already showed back in 2009 that there is an economic loss uh, for our economies, for European economies, from the exclusion of Roma. So it's not only that our countries and our societies and our economies will gain something in 20, 30 years. We are losing significant resources even today. So, Jellico, you already answered your our very last question about your utopia and your dream for Europe. So there's still a lot of work ahead of us. Yeah, and I, I agree 100% with, with everything that you said. Yeah. I think it's very important to hear this. We need to repeat this. And it's good to have different people say it in a different way. Uh, it's a message that has to get through. But Isabel, uh, I think this is far from utopia. I think this is not utopian in the sense of this is impossible. I think not only that this is possible, this is necessary. Mm -hmm. If I would think about utopia, I mean, utopia would be that Europe is not only where Europe started, which is purely economic interest. It was a coal and steel community that was more or less, Yanis Varoufakis calls it a cartel. Mm-hmm. So that Europe is not only uh, a conglomerate or the, I would say uh, a total sum of individual economic interests of you know financial elites and uh, political elites, but that Europe is truly what it claims to be, a community of people, not only community of states, community of people that uh, strive for peace and prosperity. Mm. That, and in that prosperity, I think that we are treated as human beings with equal worth. You know, you have different interpretations of uh, equality because everybody talks about equality, but nobody really speaks about what what being equal means. And you have different theories, and I wouldn't go go into that. We don't have time. But one of them is about seeing each other as moral equals. And to me, for European continent that every now and then has war and bloodshed, every now and then has organized hatred between populations, including Roma, but not only Roma. Europe that has been 
going through a painful past and still not learning enough and fast enough that promise that we are a community of people that are bonded by the the peace and uh, prosperity for everyone, that's somehow a utopia, which is not necessarily Roma utopia. It is utopia for for Europe Mm -hmm. that should be still our regulatory framework to measure how far we are from it. And I think we are right now very far, but I do believe that it is a, a necessity for Europe, for Europeans, as well as for us Roma as Europeans, to uh, take part in pushing towards that ut- common utopia. Even if it's all, always going to be difficult to achieve the ideal, I think utopia goes beyond this vision of, of Roma being integral part for long-term uh, solutions and necessity for today's losses in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jelko, for staying with us, uh, giving us your, your insight, your answer. I have a very, very last question. If you have a few seconds left, just okay. to, to say, if you had the power and you could ask one question that would be broadcast on all radio, all TV, all print media in Europe for one day, what would this question be that you would publish for the world to see? Um. When we wake up in the morning and go to bed uh, in, the, in the night, what can we say? How did we use the day to make the world the better place for everyone? <laughs> That's a nice one, really. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Jellico, we could continue talking to you for hours. Thank you very much for being with us. It was um, inspiring and it was a joy. I, I really loved the conversation with you. Yeah, thanks for your time. You you really posed uh, interesting questions. These games were also very nice. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank you for, for doing this. This is, uh, I, I would say, unconventional project and uh, so, much, uh, so much necessary. The questions that uh, you drive me through made me not only say what I said already, but maybe also th- think. And this thinking space through this kind of work is uh, is really important in the days when we are overwhelmed by work, o- overwhelmed by you know online uh, presence and our screens and phones and so on. Uh, I, I just want to thank you. This is this is really really important. I'm looking forward to to hear uh, others and learn from from others. I hope uh, soon the material will be available. Yes, it will. Thank you, Jellico, for these warm thank words. Thank you, Isabel. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you. Thanks. So, hope to see you soon in person. Absolutely. Yeah. I will see, you at the, see you at the next conference. Of course. <laughs> <Good luck. laughs> of course. All the best. Bye, Jellico. Okay. Bye. Romatopia is supported by the Federal Agency for Civic Education and the Council of Europe Roma and Travelers Team. Idea and concept Isabel Rabe. Romatopia is hosted and edited by Isabel Rabe and William Bila and directed by Katja Lehmann. Sound design by Selamet and Kefai Prisreni. Cover motif by Daniel Baker. Production Media Bricks Berlin 2020.